Hi everybody and welcome. This is Craig from the University of Applied Research and Development here with Dr. Ariel Ellis, who is an author. She's also the Assistant Professor at Lipscomb University and Managing Partner at Advisor 83, Advisory 83, sorry, and also the author of the original Millennial. So we're delighted to have you with us, Ariel. Hi, thank you so much, Craig. I'm delighted to be here. Look, I'm, I'm excited because you're doing so many different things, and I, I love hearing people from different geographies and different cultures and different perspectives and generations. So I think it would be really interesting for you to tell us what you're doing now, what's capturing your attention, what you're excited about. Sure. So as you said, I'm a professor at Lipscomb University. I teach the public relations courses there in Nashville, Tennessee, which is where I'm based. Uh, I am a Southerner, born and raised in the Southern region of the U.S., and so uh, that brings along some, you know, interesting perspectives as it relates to race and gender and, and, and things of that nature. And so it just so happens that as a, as a communicator, um, I not only teach, but I also get a chance to teach what I do and do what I teach. I get a chance to consult in a variety of different areas. And so I'm really excited about not only teaching my students in this upcoming school year with the uh, interruption, if you will, of this global pandemic that we're, that we're experiencing right now, but also have some really interesting challenges and uh, opportunities to guide my clients through as a consultant in the space of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and really helping them also not only think about diversity, inclusion, and, and equity from a, a strategic lens, but also think about it from a, a place of education, training, learning, development, and things of that nature. So there are a variety of different challenges ahead of us, but there are some amazing, amazing opportunities and advantages for us ahead. So what is, or what, are, what is one or two of the advantages that are coming up that you think could be the most powerful to really focus on to sure. meet some of these challenges? Sure. I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of will share, I guess, from a perspective as an educator uh, of students as well as an educator of professionals, executives, if you will. So I get a chance to do both. I get a chance to teach students. Uh, at the undergraduate and at the graduate level, uh, but then also I get a chance to teach uh, professionals who are working from home and navigating life with children who are learning remotely and are uh, uh, adjusting to life in this very new way. And what I'm explaining to my students now is, you know, some of my students aren't able to come back uh, to the states. Some of my students aren't able are in the states and aren't able to. Uh, come to campus and live on campus at the moment and some are itching and ready to go and come back to campus and so what we're navigating right now I think with, with students is helping them identify what the new normal is as it relates to learning. Um, some of us, most of us are navigating that new normal as it relates to our work but students is a little different for them. They want to make good grades they want, to, uh, they want to succeed in their area, their, their content area. They want to get jobs and internships and things of that nature. And so learning under these environments and in a situation where uh, you're at home and home may be comfortable, it may be too comfortable for you to learn in, it may not be comfortable at all for you to learn in. Uh, access to technology might be an issue. Uh, a variety of different things. So making them very comfortable right now. Uh, 
and trying to find ways where I can adjust whatever I need to do to help them think about what it means to have a great experience and uh, in the learning process, but also because I teach students who are, uh, are young professionals in the communication and journalism and PR and advertising industry, this is a great opportunity for them to learn how to navigate situations as such, right? Uh, what does it mean to guide a brand through a global pandemic? What does it mean to engage with customers and consumers and and constituents and stakeholders with the midst in the midst of everything that's going on right now teaching those teaching them those very intricate intricate uh, 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 nuances if you will cultural nuances that that these things that we're experiencing can bring about that none of us were prepared for right none of us have seen before so really um, uh, holding their hand to a certain extent through this process and letting them know everything's gonna be okay. But also, I wanna get you prepared for this world out here. But on the other side of that, it's being an educator and an advisor to my clients. And in a way where I'm holding my students' hands, my clients and the organizations that I give advice and con consultation to, I'm not holding their hand, I'm walking alongside them. Right. And I'm being their partner in the process and helping them think through um, still calming, still uh, uh, approaching things with a, a thought leadership type approach, um, still giving them access to new information and, and coming up with ways to make the work that they do that much easier but also that much more impactful with everything that we have going on. So it means that I'm being a thought leader in both areas, right? As a clinician, as a practitioner, but also as an educator in a traditional higher ed space that is no longer truly as traditional as it used to be. So it's, it, it is, I think we have some advantages, particularly as educators, especially educators who are essentially clinicians or practitioners. We have some advantages now. And I think those of us who not only teach in a traditional space, who teach the traditional student, but also teach in a corporate space, we have the responsibility, or we have, we have the advantage of being hope dealers we bring hope <laughs> we have to right because people are seeking knowledge from us right um so we're often having to bring hope to every situation that we're in looking at all the factors identifying all the facts you know considering all the issues but making sure that the people who are learning from us knowing that we are the guardians of knowledge and they're seeking to glean from us that we get to bring hope in this space. So that's what I look forward to. I would imagine it's challenging when you're working in academia and also with corporates that, as you've said, you are the hope bringer. And when you're giving out hope and giving out encouragement and meeting other people's needs, how do you fill up your tank? Oh, that's a good question. How do I fill up my tank? So I am an active uh, meditator. I meditate on a very regular basis. Um, I go into kind of a spiritual space where I'm on a, 
I'm, I'm in, in, in a prayer mode on daily and I'm, I'm searching for as much inspiration as possible. And I put, a, put that on a regular routine for myself. And I was doing that before we kind of moved into this uh, global pandemic. And so it's just a natural transition for me to do more of it uh, and to be more intentional about it. So you, you realize that you do have to consistently fill your tank and you realize that you also have to do a lot of self-care. Self-care is very, very critical, whether it's taking multiple breaks, whether it's taking naps when you need to, uh, whether it's just kind of zoning out and reading or even checking out to go to YouTube or go to Netflix, uh, or checking in with family and friends on a regular basis, having quiet time. I think educators, we, we are, again, those guardians of knowledge. And we have to, people are looking to us for answers. They're looking to us for solutions. So it means that we have to really, really care for ourselves as much as possible. So I'm meditating, I'm writing, I have a podcast that I host. So I, I, I'm doing as much as I can to care for myself so that I can care for others. Speaking of your podcast, uh, I was looking through episode 13 and episode six. Uh, they were about self-sabotage and also dealing yeah. with difficult people and trying to maintain that mindset of excellence and those types of situations. So can you give us some of those strategies then when it, it, we can develop these self-sabotaging habits and behaviors? Give us some strategies and some thought processes to help us navigate that. Yeah. When you, you know, self-sabotage is one of those things that we often do subconsciously. We don't always realize that we're sabotaging our, our success and our, even our livelihood. And so I think what's really important is to, you have to kind of do this daily process of reminding yourself of your value and your worth, because a lot of times that's where it comes from. We will, um, we can talk ourselves out of being our best self. You know, we talk a lot about being your best self and bringing your best self to a space, but there's a lot of ways that we can perpetuate the negative self-talk. I mean, we're isolated. A lot of us are, we're socially isolated. We're socially distancing. Um, we are uh, not able to hug and touch one another like we generally are. We aren't able to visit family and friends as much as we used to. We're not able to go to conferences and go to coffee and shake hands and go to weddings and funerals. So that has shifted the way we do life. And we don't know when this is going to shift to what to the life that we use back to the life that we used to know right so it means that that self-sabotage can now be worse of a practice than it probably used to be before we got into this global pandemic situation so when we think about self-sabotage what we have to realize again we don't always know that we're doing it but it's a clear reminder that something in how we see ourselves is off there's something off with how I see myself. Is it external circumstances? Is it negative self-talk? Is it comparison? Is it, the, is it FOMO? What is it? Is it too much social media? Is it too much uh, 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 media in general? Or am I watching the news too much? Am I, do, do I feel that my job is at jeopardy? Am I concerned about the safety and the, the livelihood of my family? What is it that is shifting my self-worth, right? And when that self-sabotage happens, 
we, 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 we limit ourselves. We limit ourselves from everything that we know we can be. And it means, as I said earlier, it means that I'm consistently doing self-care. I'm not denying myself of the pleasure that is out there for me to experience. Even though I have some restrictions with what's going on in the world, I know that if I seek balance, I don't necessarily have to uh, succumb to the self-sabotage. So I think what it means, Craig, is often seeking balance. I don't think now, some people are going to disagree with me on this, but I don't think that work-life balance truly exists. I think that what we do is a juggle, right? I think that it means when we say work-life balance, I get what we mean, that how do I have a little bit of this and have a little bit of that both at the same time? You can, but while one thing is up in the air, something else is hanging down below waiting to go up in the air. And the thing that's up in the air is waiting to come down. So what it really is, is a juggle, right? We juggle multiple things. And if you ever watch a juggler, you will notice that a juggler has rhythm, right? Whereas if I'm trying to balance something, I may not be able to find that stability, right, in a balance, right? I have to really, really work hard to balance myself because there, the stability may not be there. The sturdiness might not be there. The wind could blow and throw me off. Somebody could call my name and distract me, right, when I'm trying to balance but when I'm juggling, I could at least get into a rhythm, right? And so that's why I say that when it comes to self-sabotage, we think that it's balance that's the answer, but it's really uh, trying to find balance with everything that we have going on and not necessarily relying on it to be the answer, right? So I hope that really makes sense. I think that it's easy to self-sabotage now. Is so much more easier now than it once was before. And so I think that in seeking those answers, we have to continue to kind of stay connected and do as much as we can to acknowledge our self-worth and understand uh, what, we, what we have inside of us. Mm. Self-care, identifying those things that are speaking negatively to us, could be social media or the amount of it, and then finding a rhythm to help Absolutely. us navigate through things. Absolutely. You know, you're the, you're the first person in 20 years who's actually acknowledged to me directly that there is no such thing as work-life balance because I completely agree with that. The first person was Dr. Phil Kerr, who runs a very large institution in New Zealand. He said that to me 20 years ago, and I've never heard anyone else actually say that because I completely agree with you. I'd love for you to just share your motivation behind writing The Original Millennial. I'm so glad you asked that. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that because in the book, I actually <laughs> declare for millennials, like, forget about it. There's no work-life balance for us, uh, particularly for our generation. Uh, you know, Craig, I, I wrote that book because I'm a millennial, of course, and I discovered that um, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur, as, as I said earlier, and the moment I graduated from college, I started a business. I noticed that over, over, over a period of time, I noticed that there was a lot of conversations about millennials being lazy and narcissistic and entitled and spoiled. 
but that didn't represent the millennials that I knew. And it certainly didn't represent me. I knew millennials who were leaders and thinkers and problem solvers and entrepreneurs and community minded. And I wanted to write about those people. But I also realized after I started doing some research before I even decided to write the book, um, I realized that uh, the stats said that millennials were the largest generation to date and that 75% of millennials would make up a, a strong portion of leaders in the workplace by 2025. So if we are entitled and spoiled and lazy and narcissistic, then what does that mean for, for leadership and organizations, right? <laughs> if 75% of us are going to be leading organizations by the year 2025, what does that mean? So I thought that there was this interesting juxtaposition between those two thoughts. And as I started to dig and do the research, I realized, Craig, that there was no voice. There was no conversation about millennial leadership. There was nothing giving millennials a blueprint on how to lead. Uh, there was nothing explaining to millennials who we are as a generation. There's a lot of conversation about that, but nothing to speak directly to who we are as a generation. Of course, uh, when the when the term millennials were, were was coined back, I think in 1992, if I'm not mistaken, um, that's been the strongest definition ever since. And now you've got like zennials and all these other things related to who these these sub demographics within. But I wanted to identify the original millennial. Original meaning, not original as a native millennial, but originality, the, the, the unique, important, uh, leading, impactful, authentic qualities of a millennial that make us a great generation. And so I interviewed about 50 or so millennials for the book. Uh, and, and got their feedback. I spotlighted about six of them in the book. Uh, I did a video series on YouTube and uh, interviewed several of them to talk about what leadership meant for them. Some who were uh, entrepreneurs, some who were nonprofit leaders, some who were educators, some who were climbing the corporate ladder. And I wanted to know what does leadership look like for you? What does leadership look like for your gener our generation? What inspired you to lead? Uh, and the way that you have, what are your dreams and goals? And to be able to tell those stories. And as I did that, I crafted six lessons of leadership that every millennial must master in business and community. And so it's been a great treat to be able to uh, publish that book, to be able to speak across the country, uh, even across the globe. Uh, as it relates to millennial leadership, intergenerational leadership, I find myself doing quite a few trainings for intergenerational groups, and we have five generations at work right now. And so what does that mean for us? And, and what does that mean specifically as a communicator, as a trained communicator? What does that mean for us in communication? So, um, so, so that's where the inspiration came from. And it's been a treat, as I said, to be able to uh, be a voice for my generation. It's really fascinating. I'd love in the last couple of minutes just for you to share some thoughts for aspiring leaders. What should they look to build into their experiences and their learnings going forward to prepare them to be successful? Yeah, yeah. So uh, aspiring leaders, whether they are, you know, in a younger or an older generation, but leadership, leadership is now... Um, 
one of those terms that is not um, as easily defined by way of a position or an organization or a particular job or role or even a level of education. Almost everyone has some kind of leadership capacity that they get a chance to um, take on in, in various areas, whether it's in community or um, in the workplace or even in their own business. And so I think for those who aspire more responsibility, leadership is a responsibility. Those who aspire more, uh, aspire to leadership based on the responsibility that they feel like they can take on, the vision that they feel like they, they have and want to impart, the purpose that they feel has been assigned to them. I think that what's important for them to know is that you gotta be really good at understanding people. You have to understand the human condition. In order to understand your followers, you gotta be a good follower. You got to know people. You got to study people and understand what people's needs are, their behaviors, their patterns, their, their wants, their desires, what makes them tick, what motivates them, right? I think aspiring leaders nowadays, there's not just one book. There's not just one webinar. Uh, there's not one, just one degree that you can get or one course you can take. You gotta be, you, we talked earlier about being in tune with yourself. You gotta really be in tune with yourself so that you can really understand people and understand what makes people work, what makes us tick, what makes us cry, laugh, right? And be able to understand that so that you can know how to lead effectively. I think some of the most impactful leaders are the folks who understood and understand what it means to just be human and to understand the human condition. And so I think in today's day, that's what it's going to take. Wonderful. Uh, what we will do for everybody that's watching, we'll make sure we have a link to Dr. Ariel Ellis's blog and her book and her podcast and her LinkedIn profile so that you can get in contact with her as well. Dr. Ariel, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you being with us. Dr. Ariel, need to get your name right because my daughter is Ariel. So thank you so much, Dr. Ariel, for being with us. It's been a privilege, and I've learned a lot, and I've written lots of notes as well. So thank you for your time. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me.